Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Velma Scantenberry, Medical Consultant for Dialysis Patients Citizens Educational Center. Welcome this afternoon. It's a beautiful afternoon right here in Delaware and you and I hope all of you are having a wonderful day regardless of where you are. So I am going to pause and welcome those. Welcome Agnes for coming on. Again, I'm Dr. Velma Scantenberry with Dialysis Patient Citizens Educational Center and I am the medical consultant here to have this live chat, this discussion with all of you and to answer your questions. Thank you Peggy for coming on. Tell me where you are and what's the weather like in your area of the country. I am here in Delaware and we are having a, a very beautiful afternoon. The sun is out, uh, there's no rain in sight. And so getting ready to really begin the start of, for us here is the uh, vaccination season. So we're planning uh, physical exams for our young people, sports physicals going back to school, but we're also looking forward to starting uh, COVID vaccines as well as flu vaccines for the upcoming season, knowing that we now have um, a new vaccine that's out recommended by the the CDC recently cleared and waiting for it to be shipped out to the various areas for our, our constituents to receive a vaccination for the fall. Uh, as well as we know, beginning in uh, October, I usually try to tell patients to don't, do not get your flu vaccine too early because it's really only supposed to last five to six months. So if you start too early, the, you know, last year there were many people getting the flu in March and April. So you want to maximize the effect of that flu vaccine. I generally defer, tell patients to defer until, until mid-October. Uh, so that you have uh, enough immunity that will build up over the winter to get you through until March, uh, hopefully. And um, remembering that the vaccines are all, all geared in terms of the antibodies to the vaccine are all geared around the, the recent strains that have been around the previous year and changes from year to year. So if you have different flu strains, that's why the vaccine is usually not the same as the one that was given the year before because viruses mutate. And so when they mutate, uh, the antibodies that are designed to boost your immune system through the vaccine will not be the same. And so we have to change the vaccine so that those antibodies are now geared towards the most dominant strains of the flu virus. And the same thing for the COVID vaccine. and. Uh, for those of you who have just joined, Elizabeth Lively and, and Elizabeth Odom, thank you for coming on. Yesenia I, and uh, Mashia Jones, thank you so much. Uh, so we're talking about the fall and flu vaccination as well as COVID vaccine, knowing that there are now uh, new recommendations. The one thing that's interesting is that to note that vaccination in the past has been generally geared for COVID bivalent vaccines, trying to uh, really target the dominant strains of COVID 
uh, as we have gone over the past year, we now know that the strain that's around is pretty much uh, a single strain that they're focusing on. And it's very similar to those ones that were before. So the new vaccines will be monovalent. It would not be uh, covering uh, old strains. So for instance, the vaccine that was given uh, in 2020 will not be the same as the one currently now. So definitely there was a question, should renal patients, transplant patients get immunizations such as COVID and flu at the same time or space it out? Last year, we were saying that is no issue with getting it at the same time. Uh, the recent update last week from the CDC recommendations was that while you can get it at the same time, they did notice that patients had more response in terms of side effects uh, of the two vaccines together. If you are pushed for time and can't get it separately, maybe do it in two different arms uh, so that you're not aching terribly on one. Uh, so while you don't have to, and it's better if you feel like you had a, a, a major or significant response and side effects to the last uh, vaccine that you had that you took with flu, you may want to do it differently and, and space it out as Martin suggested. I did not have a problem. I got both of mine on this, at the same time, two different arms. I don't think my response was any different to any of the previous vaccines I had received or even the flu separately and the COVID uh, separately. Uh, thank you. Elizabeth asks, is it important for dialysis patients to get the new RSV immunization? Uh, follow your doctor's recommendation. RSV is recommended. You have to make sure that, um, I think for dialysis patients, that it should be covered by your, by your insurance. Uh, some patients that I know had a difficulty because the plan that they were on did not cover, so it's not it's not free, and so you do have to make sure that you're not paying out of pocket for it. It is expensive. The reason our state here in Delaware did not order any on the bulk is because it was a couple hundred dollars per vaccine, and without knowing who was going to uh, receive it, they didn't want to be stuck with. Um, a lot of vaccines that were not used. So check with your doctor. It is a live attenuated vaccine. And so therefore, for transplant patients, we want to avoid any live vaccination until, uh, unless there are further recommendations from your doctor or your infectious disease person. So it is a nasal live attenuated. So remember that for the RSV, if your transplant patient you want to avoid that until your doctor gives you clearance to say if it is or isn't good for you to have a live attenuated. Generally, we do not recommend those for uh, transplant patients. So discuss that with your doctor. Uh, had a transplant on 423 and so far it has failed. Really disappointed and still on dialysis. So I'm so sorry, Martin. Um, unfortunately, oftentimes when you have to remember when you're Transplant is being done. It's not with the intent that it will not work. We generally do our best to predict that the kidney will work. Sometimes there's a delayed response in terms of how quickly the kidney opens up depending on the issues surrounding the donor and how the donor died. Uh, was there a lot of hypotension uh, in terms of blood pressure being low? Was there a lot of blood loss? Oftentimes, the, the
the kidney um, goes into shock surrounding the circumstances of the donor death. And we know that, or we predict that the recovery will be slow, but based on the kidney function, we often will still take a gamble in saying that this, this kidney can recover and will recover. For some patients, it's slower than others. And in other patients, um, it's, it may not be the same. You can take two kidneys from the same donor, put them into two separate, two different recipients and have two different outcomes. Uh, and so the outcome also depends on circumstances of the recipient, blood pressure, heart disease, how well the heart can pump, so many other things that go into the equation. Uh, two different persons may have a different response in the immune system, and one patient will have more rejection than the other because even though they receive the same kidney, their immune system is different. And so their response to each kidney can often be different. So uh, hopefully, um, <clears throat> it, since you're back on dialysis, I assume that you have not lost your waiting time and will be able to recover that time and uh, get back on the list for a retransplant. So thank you so much for sharing that with you. Hello from living on dialysis. Uh, welcome, Michael Gilchrist, and thank you for joining. I'm Dr. Velma Scanterbury, uh, the medical consultant for Dialysis Patient Educational Center. And I'm here to answer your questions today. Thank you, Julie. Uh, looking forward to the annual advocacy day in Washington, D.C. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you very much for being an advocate. For those of you who are not uh, on the members of the Dialysis Patient Citizens, please uh, go to the website, sign up. There's so much information you can learn. There's uh, things to whether you're on dialysis or whether you've received the kidney. And even for those who are support people, if you have someone who is with kidney disease or kidney failure on dialysis, friends or relatives, you can be part of this community because it's also important for you to get that same kind of education because as caretakers or members of the family, you can offer help. You can be there to support them. You, The more you understand about the process and what they are going through, the more you can be an advocate for them and the more you can help them on the journey and be that support person because uh, being on dialysis is, is can be very difficult depending on how long you've been on dialysis. Many patients experience depression because you have to think about where am I, where do I go from here? Am I going to get better? When will I get my kidney? Am I going to get a kidney? You know, what's my, what's my outcome? And so therefore we want to be able to be there to support those that we love, those that we know, and it's so important for us to be there. And I want to thank all of you guys who are advocates, who are really participating in helping others, getting policies changed, uh, making information available to all those around you, even within your own dialysis community, as well as within your your um, your own district and um, and family. So thank you so much. Question: How soon after a kidney has rejected? How soon after kidney has rejected can you go back on the list? Uh, generally, the you can you know oftentimes we tell patients if you have a kidney in place and you are let's say you've had it for a while you've passed a year or two years five years uh, generally as you're being followed 
once that kidney starts to deteriorate, is to say you have repeated rejection um, and it wasn't able to be controlled or it, the kidney just developed slowly puttered out because you've had it for eight or 10 years. Once we notice that your kidney function is not reversible, the decline in your kidney function is not reversible, even before you fail, uh, you can go back on the list. So yeah, as long as we can document that you have uh, an established low creatinine, uh, low creatinine clearance of 20% or less, we can get that, get you back on the list for, get you worked up, get your repeat heart studies. Let's say it's been five years or 10 years, go through the process that would be shorter uh, and get you listed for time knowing that in this process you're still you still have residual kidney function and you're able to do continue to work you're not returning to dialysis you're somewhere between 20 and 15 percent but even with a transplanted kidney you're still continuing to have good function your creatinine may be four or maybe 3.5 depending on your size uh, but if you as long as you have that documented EGFR of 20%, you can get back on the list. So we've had many people who have been relisted, but not, not ready to be retransplanted because they still have good functionality with that remaining 15 or 18%. And they're feeling like they don't have those symptoms that are required that are that are mandating a new kidney to be placed. So once you so you don't necessarily have to return to dialysis as long as we know that there's chronic rejection and it's irreversible, 20% uh, clearance back on the list, uh, gain time, because if you've been off the list and a transplant for five years, you now have to start over. So that will occur and often patients will wait until we find it's the perfect kidney or they may get a uh, six antigen match, and you say you don't want to pass on this, even though your creatinine, your clearance, you know, you feel like you still don't need transplanted. The other side of this is oftentimes there are patients who will undergo rejection or kidney doesn't work immediately, as the young man who uh, came on, who shared a story earlier, and the time to they need to be a certain minimum time before you can be added back on the list and not lose your your previous time. So if you had a kidney transplant that was placed uh, and it didn't work at month one, month two, month three, I think you have, I'm not sure the correct time, but generally up to about six months, four to six months. If, you're, if the doctors know that this kidney is not gonna open up, they can put you back on the list and you didn't lose your previous eight years that you waited before you received this kidney that didn't function. Uh, and so it has to be done within a certain window of time uh, and in order to regain that time. So that is a different scenario in terms of having a non-functioning kidney uh, that doesn't do anything. Let's say you have severe rejection, uh, the kidney never worked, you biopsied it, severe rejection, uh, and they have to remove the kidney within that first two or three months, then you, you can you automatically go back on the list once that kidney is removed and once it's documented that it was complete failure. So I hope that answers your question. Um, and therefore, for many patients, as unless this kidney is your identical twin, your body will see all transplants as a foreign entity and you will need anti-rejection medicine 
and your body will eventually uh, wear out that kidney as a foreign entity. Some people will take a few years and other people may take 10, 15 years uh, to, for that kidney to finally lose the battle in, in your immune system, being able to overcome chronic rejection, scarring, and even though your creatinine may not be bad, we do this biopsy and we show that your kidney is now replaced with a lot of scar tissue. That's chronic rejection. And when that happens, you'll need a new kidney. So for many people, that's where the prediction of where you're going can get you back on the list long before you hit dialysis. Uh, question, catheter versus fistula. Uh, generally, for many patients, yes. The issue with catheters are generally is that they happen in an acute situation or where there is um, uh, not enough time to predict or to allow for a fistula to be placed. So unfortunately, you were unaware of the fact that your kidneys are failing. Uh, you were taken to emergency room. You have acute renal failure. Uh, irreversible, your creatinine, you know, stage five, and the doctor is saying, uh, sorry, EB, you will need to be on dialysis um, and you need to be dialyzed sooner rather than later. A catheter is placed because of the urgency of the situation and the need to perform dialysis uh, in an acute fashion, short time, days, weeks. Having a fistula, having, to have a fistula, you have to know that you will, one, have a need for long-term dialysis sometime in the future, in the uh, months to come, generally with those who may be diagnosed in stage four, going on to five, and understand that you will need to be dialyzed. You want to have something in place. Avoid having this catheter placed in your neck. Uh, we'll undergo surgery to place the fistula where we connect your, your artery to your vein. Uh, allow this vein uh, to to mature where the arterialized blood is now in a vein which is closer under the surface of your skin until it really gets mature where you can feel a thrill and there's enough flow in that vein to uh, then support dialysis on a regular basis. It does take uh, weeks to mature so there it's done in a situation where there's no urgency of dialysis uh, and so the better way to and the way to avoid having a catheter is to be able to anticipate your need for dialysis down the line. Catheters, although many patients prefer to have them, they, they're not the method of choice because one, they're, they become easily infected. Two, long-term catheters in your neck in this, in this vein can result in stenosis or narrowing in that vein. And for many patients that inhibits the ability to use that arm for a fistula because now the placement of that catheter in the vein allows for a buildup of material and now the vein is narrowed, you have problems with drainage on, on the arm. So generally a catheter is placed on the opposite side of where the you anticipate the patient will need a fistula in the future. So it is important to not keep those catheters for a long time because you end up with narrowing in that in that vein, it becomes a long-term problem that becomes really wreak havoc on your ability to have future surgeries, a future catheters placed. So those things are, while well, you feel like I'm, I don't have to get stuck, you can just connect. It does come with a long list of issues. So thank you for that question. 
uh, transplant meds, should patients be concerned if the manufacturer is changed? Is the strength of this is the strength the same? Well, let me say that in order for a medication to be approved as a generic, it has to be plus or minus twenty percent of the potency of the of the brand name. So some of the gen not all generics will respond. This your body may not respond the same way because if this generic brand is 18% less potent, it's still cleared by the FDA. <laughs> so now you have a generic brand that's fallen within the 20% plus or minus, but the potency is different. So oftentimes we'll tell patients, if you change to a generic, try to stay uh, uh, with that generic. Unfortunately, many pharmacies do not tell you when they change uh, their agreements with different pharmaceutical companies and so one of uh, one month your your pills a whole different color than the the next time you get your refill three months later for many medications not really a big deal for immunosuppression uh it sometimes makes a difference and for some patients we will say if you change in uh, your generic stick with that generic and make sure uh, if you find that if you find that your levels are fluctuating back and forth whenever you get a different one, we may then uh, sort of tell the pharmacy to make sure that they stick to the same uh, brand, or we may make it brand name necessary in order to avoid that confusion. So uh, many of the pharmaceutical many of the insurance companies insist that you get a generic as opposed to brand name. So it is important to know. Uh, what you're taking and to stay with those uh, those brands if you're if you're if you're if you have to take a, a, a generic brand so it is important the strength may not be the same and so uh, following your levels after you switch to a different one is important to let your doctors know so thank you so much for that question I hope it was answered appropriately welcome Marianne and um, Yolanda, thank you for adding the information on there on DPC information uh, membership. It is in, it is important to get as much. In Sorry about that. Someone is trying to call me in the middle of my presentation. So we want to be able to gain as much knowledge as possible because we all can educate those around us, educate our community, educate our church, educate our, those in our book club, uh, all those kind of all those all those kind of groups that are meeting. You can bring more and more information about end stage kidney disease, about uh, the need for transplant, the need to get uh, those people who may be on the edge about organ donation, explaining to them the benefits of organ donation and why so many people can be helped. Understanding that for those of you who I live with others in terms of getting vaccinated. You may be the patient, you may be the one who's immunocompromised, but remember to also look at those in your household because you are at risk depending on those who surround you or those who are in your environment. So you also wanna make sure that they are protected against the same kind of uh, exposures that may put you at risk. So oftentimes I know within COVID, we found that grandma stayed at home and tried not to go out uh, so that she can avoid getting sick. But unfortunately, when you have the grandkids coming in and out and visitors coming over and everyone's going to church and going to the mall, uh, and then they're bringing these uh, 
uh, diseases back home. So if you are the one who's immunocompromised and you uh, at risk, uh, even as a dialysis patient, whether you have a transplant or whether you're on dialysis, your risk of uh, it, your immune system is compromised. And so therefore it becomes important to warn those around you to really um, understand that they have to protect you as well. Uh, so thank you so much. Um, the medication that was hard for me when I had my transplant was steroids. Awful. Is there a possible possibility of taking a different med instead of steroids? Well, initially after transplant in that early, in order to avoid that acute rejection in the time of uh, implantation of the kidney or any organ, you need steroids because it's part of the package to get started, to turn off your body's immune system and to be able to say, I'm gonna place this organ into your body and I'm gonna block that defense mechanism. There are many programs who will give initial steroids up front, but they're ended um, in three days and then you go home without steroids. It all depends on your risk for rejection. If you're a retransplant and you've had another, a previous transplant, your immune system is gonna be more primed because you've been exposed already uh, and so it's more difficult to avoid steroids with a second transplant depending on your degree of rejection that you had uh, with the first one so retransplants are often more difficult and therefore uh, the possibility of avoiding steroids is is not going to be as easy as if it was a first transplant there are also patients who come to transplant with preformed antibodies from pregnancy, from blood transfusions, from other exposures. And those preformed antibodies, if you know exist, meaning that your attack, attack mechanism, your policemen are already primed and waiting for that transplant, it's, you almost cannot avoid steroids in those cases. So there are those times that you would try to uh, get around it and minimize it, but there are some situations where we know this is not a patient who can go without steroids. If so, we may try a biopsy routinely to see what's going on in the kidney, make sure that there, we're not missing anything. And then uh, if biopsy early, uh, have um, cell-free DNA testing where we know that it will give us a monitor of what's happening to your kidney long before your creatinine change, it becomes important to do those kind of tests do routine biopsies at three months and six months in a year to see what's going on. <coughs> Excuse me. But are there those patients who, unfortunately, you may be one of them who just can't avoid uh, steroids after transplant. Michael asks, if, if needing dialysis, please look into home PD and home hemodialysis. Definitely our bodies do a lot better with the slow mode of dialysis. Just imagine that you eat every day, two or three times a day, a body is metabolizing it slowly. Uh, then you go to dialysis and you want to get rid of all those metabolites that you have accumulated three days a week for four, four, four and a half hours a time. That can wreak havoc on your body and the worst and more so your cardiovascular system. So if you have a way of doing home PD where you can do uh, three hours every day or three hours, five days a week, uh, something that's slower but more consistent, you get better, uh, less consequence on your cardiovascular system. 
So it's important to look at home hemo, home PD, because the, 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 it's more sustainable, uh, less detrimental to your body. Uh, I know many people are afraid to even consider it, but ask questions, look into it, talk to someone who's, who's, who've done it, and, and then be able to have that direct communication before you say, no, this is not for me, because that it can often um, give you so much better cardiovascular response. Uh, some, like Michael said, we do nocturnal home hemodialysis four days a week for, for eight hours, so much better on your cardiovascular system. So I think the more we know, the more we understand, and the more questions we can ask. Uh, and many patients say, no, no, I, I'm so afraid to do that. Uh, I don't know what, they get put you through, a, they, they train you to do this so that you're not just doing it by yourself. You go through classes, you go through a slow understanding with the nurses in the unit, uh, and then you're able to do that. Uh, PD, the same thing, home PD, you are able to travel. So many more advantages of being able to have that freedom as well as when we look at the long-term consequences of uh, dialysis only three three days a week, they're much worse than those compared to home dialysis. So better overall, get educated, talk to your friends, talk to those who have gone through it so you can have a better idea. Thank you very much, um, Michael, for bringing that up and, and you are definitely a spokesperson for that. So. Remember that we have another Facebook Live chat next Wednesday, home hemodialysis and perineal dialysis coming up. Great opportunity to ask your questions. Make sure you log on, dialysis patient citizens at 12.30. And you know, as uh, if you need any help, as uh, Michael is saying with home dialysis, please reach out to him or Christina Gilchrist, so Gilchrist. So thank you so much, guys. I, this was a wonderful chat. Be sure to log on next week to learn more about home dialysis and parenting dialysis. Uh, have your loved ones also uh, so that you can have some support uh, and others who may, be, who may be willing to help you through this journey. So that's so important. You don't have to do it alone. There are always many others out there who are willing to, to help you, uh, give you more information uh, and really relieve your fears. And it's so much easier when you have someone to talk to and to say, well, what about this? What, you know, what, what can I do to make it easier? Where should I do this? What does it feel like? So all those things, it's been a, a great time talking with you and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Enjoy. And for those of you going to DC, have a wonderful time. Take care. God bless.